Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. You are listening to the Mother of All Talk Shows podcast with George Galloway. Rishi Sunak, the unelected Prime Minister of a near-bankrupt European economy, says that China is the greatest danger to Britain, to Europe, and to its alliance. Greatest danger. We better tell them down at Hinkley Point because the reality is the Chinese own 33.3% of our nuclear power plant and indeed are involved in the construction of it. So we are allowing someone we regard as the greatest danger to us to own and help construct our nuclear plant. He also said that China was the greatest economic danger, which is a bit rich, even for Rishi, because our economy is on the floor. China's economy is booming. Perhaps that's what he meant. But is China responsible for the parlous state of the British economy? Of course not. If it was not for China, it would be very much worse. In fact, we'd sink below the waves. It is the British government and the British ruling elite, including its mediocrity, the mediaocracy, that is the echo chamber of the political elite that are responsible for Britain's economic policies in their response to the economic crash in 2008, in their decade-long austerity, in their hysterical overreaction to the COVID-19 pandemic, in their closing down of our society and our economy, and now in their self-harming bout frenzy of self-harming in relation to the sanctions against Russia and the billions that we are shipping out to Ukraine when our own people are facing price increases in the shops of 25% and more. They say our inflation rate is 12%, but household food shopping is 25% up on the same period last week. Is that China's fault? Is making economic war against China going to solve that? Then, of course, there's the even more serious implied threat to China that if China is the greatest threat to our security, well, we'll better do something about that. I don't know, send a gunboat up the Yangtze, although that didn't go so well back in 1949. Are we going to send our aircraft carriers held together by glue? Only one of them, because the other one has broken down and is being cannibalized for parts. How are we going to face 
<laughs> Pardon me. How are we going to face this military threat that China represents? And does Rishi Sunak know that we have actually just joined a trading alliance of which China is the economically dominant partner? Are we going to explain around the conference table of the Pacific Partnership that we regard the main economy, the main country in that alliance to be Britain's gravest economic and military security danger. It is absolute madness. Discuss. And Joe Biden was on his feet. In fact, a series of calamities have accompanied Joe Biden's presence in Hiroshima. And I'll say more about Hiroshima in a minute. Joe Biden's pre uh, uh, presence there has been one disaster after another. First of all, in talking about the South Korean president, he called him President Lun. In talking to the Japanese prime minister, he called him the president. But Japan doesn't have a president. It has an emperor. You'd have thought a man of Joe Biden's age would know that. And the South Korean prime minister's name is not Lun. The last prime minister was Moon, and this prime minister has a name which doesn't sound anything like either Moon and definitely not Lun. It is the lunatic asylum that Joe Biden is presiding over. But that was the least of his problems. He said that Russia had lost 100,000 dead soldiers in capturing Bakhmut, or Artemovsk, as it will henceforth be called, at least by me. He said the Russians lost 100,000, but they only had 20,000 fighting there to begin with, and they were not even Russian army soldiers. They were from a private military, military company, a PMC, a PMC largely comprising convicts that have been released from jail in return for their military service, has just beaten the combined might and armaments of NATO in Bakhmut, Artemovsk. Now, according to Zelensky, Artemovsk has not fallen and is still called Bakhmut. Joe Biden announced that it had fallen but that the Russians had lost 100,000. 100,000 dead implies 300,000 casualties, at least maybe 400,000. And yet Wagner still had enough soldiers left over to capture all, according to the Russians, or most, according to the Americans, of a great industrial conurbation. That would seem to imply that they had at least a million soldiers in the field. But how can a private company have a million soldiers? It is complete lunacy. But that's what the president, the leader of NATO, actually said this week. Now, the G7 are wrapping up in Hiroshima. We've made a video we'll show you in uh, 20, 30 minutes or so from now, 
I won't go over all the points that I made there, but isn't it the ultimate insult to the Japanese people to hold the G7 in Hiroshima when they are busily preparing what may very well lead to World War III and the exchange not of the fat boys of August of 1945, but the very slim and very fast and a thousand times more powerful hypersonic nuclear weaponry that a World War III would automatically involve. Isn't that a bit rubbing it in for the people of Hiroshima, especially as the police were forced to club people down in the streets of Hiroshima and other Japanese cities for protesting, not only about the presence of these leaders in Hiroshima, but the absolute refusal of the President of the United States to apologize to the hundreds of thousands of civilians that were struck in Hiroshima by the world's first use of an atomic bomb. 80,000 people in Hiroshima died just like that in a flash, a very big, blinding flash. 80,000 people vaporized in a millisecond on the 6th of August 1945. But then the radiation began to seep into the water, into the food chain, into the bodies and the brains of the people of Hiroshima. 140,000 died as a result of one single bomb. And women in the labor wards of Hiroshima were still giving birth to mutilated children as a result of that radiation many decades after the Second World War had ended. But they were there. They're in Okinawa clubbing people in Okinawa, a place that they have turned into a bordello, into a casino, into the site of organized U.S. military crime. They have occupied Japan since 1945. They didn't allow Japan even to have a military, and yet now they are trying to press gang Japan into a military alliance to combat the threat of China. The rubric is China is becoming increasingly authoritarian at home and increasingly assertive abroad. But they never give any example of that assertiveness abroad. None, because there is none. China has one military base in the entire world outside of China. It's in Djibouti in Africa alongside both an American and a Russian base. Djibouti is very lucky. It's got three foreign military bases. But the United States has more than 800 military bases around the world, increasingly around China. And as we now know, they've even got the biological weapons laboratories in Africa, in Sudan, in Ukraine, and no doubt in many, many other places. So what is this assertiveness that Rishi Sunak 
is determined to counter and how is he going to counter it? These are the questions as the not-so-magnificent seven winds itself up in Hiroshima tomorrow. We'll also be talking, of course, about Bakhmut and about what it means for the war. The truth is, it was in March a matter of the gravest strategic importance that the Russian takeover of Bakhmut was stopped. We know that because President Zelensky himself said so on CNN. They shall not pass, essentially, he said. If the Russians take Bakhmut, he said on CNN in March, two months ago, then the entire course of the war will be gravely and deleteriously affected. Now that it has fallen, now that, according to the Wagner Group, every last Ukrainian soldier has been killed there because they take no prisoners in the circumstances in which this war has been fought. As soon as Wagner's troops began to be ritually executed, when they fell into the hands of the Ukrainian armed forces, Wagner declared that they would no longer take prisoners. And they say that they shot the last SKP dressed as a woman and now there is not a single live soldier left in Bakhmut. So is Bakhmut of great strategic importance or is it of no importance at all? If you believe Zelensky, it was immensely important. If you believe Zelensky's choir in the Western media now, it's of no importance and no one can quite understand what all the fuss was about, why Russia tried so hard to capture it. And we'll be talking about Pakistan. In fact, our first guest is a Pakistani soldier, a retired major in the Pakistani army. Now an analyst of note, a journalist, broadcaster and commentator of note. Pakistan is turning fast into a torture chamber. Let me just give one example. A journalist called Imran Riaz Khan, as far as I know, no relation, has been kidnapped by the Pakistani intelligence ISI. There are many credible reports that he has been grievously tortured. Certainly many other prisoners, some of them now released, have testified the torture that they have suffered over these last few weeks of emergency, effectively martial law but undeclared in Pakistan, all because they are considered to be or actually are supporters of the Imran Khan, in my view, the rightful Prime Minister of Pakistan. The arrest of at least 7,000, including the entire leadership of the Pakistan Tariqi in South PTI, the party that was the governing party until the American-inspired uh, coup d'etat uh, over a year ago, 7,000 of them have been taken prisoner. And Imran Khan himself 
says that he expects to be arrested again in Islamabad when he attends court tomorrow. In my view, and I have oft expressed it, if Imran Khan disappears into the dungeons of the injustice system that currently prevails in Pakistan, we may very well never see him again. Because the crooks that now run Pakistan can no longer afford for Imran Khan to remain a thing, a political thing, a player in the upcoming unavoidable presidential parliamentary elections in Pakistan just a few months hence. And therefore the incentive for them or someone acting on their behalf to dispose of this turbulent priest will, I fear, prove overwhelming. So much agreed by so many pundits. But I alone, I think, it seems, in the English-speaking punditocracy, posit this, that if Imran Khan is murdered, as so many Pakistani leaders, some of them very close friends of mine, have been murdered before, Pakistan will quickly become uncontrollable. More than 200 million people and millions scattered around the world in the Pakistan diaspora, including millions of them in Britain, will be uncontrollable. A wave of uncontrollable violence will be unleashed in Pakistan, which given that Pakistan is a nuclear armed state bordering some of the biggest powder kegs in geopolitics today, a grave threat to international security will arise. If that's not enough to make the British government, the American government, signal to their satrapies in power in Islamabad, don't touch a hair on the head of Imran Khan because we will not be able to rescue the situation that will then ensue. I don't know really what would be. Maybe our first guest will be able to enlighten us. It's going to be, as I said, a bumpy ride. So better fasten your seatbelts. It's the mother of all talk shows. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. 
You are listening to the Mother of All Talk Shows podcast with George Galloway. Now, Adil Raja, as I described earlier, is a soldier of note, an officer, a major, retired from the Pakistan Army. Since when, he has become a pundit much followed. A million people follow him on Twitter alone. So it must be worth hearing from, and I'm glad to say he joins us for the first time on the mother of all talk shows. Uh, Major Raja, thank you for joining us. Um, have we all got it wrong uh, about uh, Pakistan? Is it uh, not the uh, cauldron of seething, anger and bloodshed and passion waiting to explode that I described earlier? Or did I get it right? Well, uh, first of all, thank you for inviting me to your show, George. Uh, it's uh, been an honor for sure. Secondly, no, you got it right. You got it absolutely right. Why? Because uh, whatsoever is happening in Pakistan is uh, essentially it is uh, not unprecedented. It has happened before, but in many ways it is unprecedented. Uh, the military has been ruling Pakistan for 75 years with an iron grip from behind the scenes sometime and mostly uh, from the forefront. But now the international environment does not allow the military to rule directly. So they install puppets and they rule through their puppets, uh, the so-called democratically elected puppets. But uh, now th th what's unprecedented is this time around, they decided to kick, uh, kick out a popular leader, Imran Khan. Well, uh, because of the information age, firstly, and secondly, because Imran Khan is the most popular leader after Muhammad Ali Jinnah. Uh, but, but many would say Bhutto is uh, of the same caliber, same league. Yeah, it can be. It can be argumented. Yeah, Bhutto was there. Bhutto, the retaliation to Bhutto's hanging by the military was very much like this. But uh, they were uh, they, uh, there was no social media back then. So that's why the things did not explode as much as it is about to be exploded right now. What's happening right now is that the army chief, who is supposed to be the ruler, cannot control his own army. Uh, he is carrying out a purge in the army, and it has been never heard ever in the history of Pakistan that you go after the lady wives, the wives of the army officer, the mothers of the army officer, the sisters of the army officers. They are being dragged around. They are being kicked around. They're being, uh, it's horrible, horrible whatsoever is happening there. And to the general population as well, we used to, we used to take pride in Pakistan in our society that we spare the women folk. We do, we fight amongst the men, but now the women are very much part of uh, the struggle because firstly, the, the, uh, the support Imran Khan enjoys is unprecedented in many ways. The middle class society, the educated lot and specifically the overseas Pakistanis. They support Imran Khan. That's unprecedented. And then the information age is unprecedented. And the women folk are coming out of supporting him are unprecedented. But a crackdown within the army. Many army officers, I know them personally, have been put behind bars. Their wives have been put behind bars. The children are crying for their mothers. But uh, there is this kind of uh, a fascism going on that within the system as well, within the armed forces as well, that it is unheard of, it is unprecedented, George. 
It must raise the possibility, Major, of actually a civil war in the country because the mass that supports Imran Khan, and it is indeed a mass, a bigger mass across all the provinces of Pakistan than has ever been agglomerated for any political leader before, including Bhutto Saab, including Benazir uh, and uh, Nawaz Sharif and so on, uh, Imran Khan has more supporters in all parts of the country than has ever been seen before, added to, as you say, the information age and so on. These are unarmed people, uh, for the moment uh, unarmed people. Uh, but the military people have got arms and uh, they must be approaching breaking point. Uh, something's got to give. Don't you think there's a real danger of fighting inside the army, a division in the army? All right, George, you've rightly pointed out there is a division within the army, but the army is bounded by the system of perks and privileges, uh, which has been brought in in the last 25 years. They, they hang a carrot uh, uh, on a stick in front of an army officer. Now they're going to raise their pays. They're going to give them free rations. Uh, the men would be sacrificing for the officers to be accommodated. That is a different story, but let me let me tell you the context. The context is right now that the, the army chief, Asim Munir, he goes to the illegal army chief, we call him, because he was appointed two days after his appointment. There is huge resentment within the army because he belongs to the officer training school, which is not the regular cadre, the elite cadre of the Pakistan Military Academy. It has been abolished uh, so, uh, for about 20 years by now, but that is also one of the grievances. Then the high-handed attitude the army chief is adopting towards the lady wives and the mothers and the sisters of the army officers and the families of the army officers, uh, so much so that the ex-army chief, General Asif Nawaz Janjua's families has been abducted and kept overnight in the jail. It is unheard of. That is going to create, that is there definitely fissures within the army. The army chief cannot, dare not go to any of the field formation without wearing a bulletproof jacket and without removing each and every single bullet, even if he's on the borders. He will make sure his security staff will make sure that they've removed the bullets from the magazines of the guns. But overall, uh, George, let me tell you, he went to the, uh, the to the Chinese. He tells the Chinese that you can keep on extracting minerals from Balochistan. All right, the Chinese are happy. They they're, they're happy. They're extracting minerals, huge quantities, and they've already been doing it. The, and their arguments have been extended. It is our belief, and the Chinese will keep on digging in there. They'll keep on taking unaccounted for wealth, the copper and the and the gold, Pakistani gold. They're going to process the raw material in China. On the other hand, within the army, he's uh, preaching all the army officers that Afghanistan is not stable. Our biggest enemy is Afghanistan right now. One thinks why? Because he has promised the Americans that uh, you know all our mobile phones that is made of lithium batteries and the screens are made of the kind of minerals. They're available in abundance. Huge quantities are available in Afghanistan. The 20 years the U.S. Uh, troops were there in Afghanistan, their corporates, uh, their corporations have already identified the site. So they've opened up their factories in India right now. Please, now, please connect the dots. Now, the, the, he goes to the American. He said, listen, extract the minerals from Afghanistan. There's only a five, six hours uh, ride uh, via Pakistan into India. Indians are happy. Americans are happy. Chinese are happy. 
Well, the, the, there you go. He's got not, nothing stopping him for becoming the next Zia. That's what he wants to become. But there is only one hurdle, and that hurdle is Imran Khan, because Imran Khan does not uh, compromise on the national interest of Pakistan. Uh, these generals, the Americans have been openly saying it, that we bribe the generals to control Pakistan. So it's so easy for them to control Pakistan to the general and not pay the due to the Pakistani people, what Imran Khan is asking. So there is a tussle going on right now. It is between the people and the military establishment in Pakistan. George. Well, I I know Imran Khan very well. Uh, he's a lion of a man, always was as a sportsman, as a political figure. Uh, he will not crack under this pressure. Uh, what about uh, his fellow leaders of his party, the PTI? Is there any possibility that the military and the imported government, as we call them, can divide uh, the, the PTI, perhaps isolate uh, Khan a bit to weaken him? Well, George, you're very much obviously in sync with the realities on ground in Pakistan. I can see that I, because this is what is actually actually exactly what's happening. The military, through their crackdown, they they maintain files on each and every politician. Now they they they, they use uh, the spy tactics. They use uh, uh, videos of uh, immoral activities. They uh, they maintain files of corruption activities. And if you've got if they've got nothing on you, they will keep files on your family and if still they haven't got anything they'll go at your family they'll abduct uh, one of your brother or well, your father maybe your mother and they'll keep them in the sort of, uh, they'll keep them in illegal confinement and they'll ask for their demands so this is what is happening in Pakistan there is a huge quantity of people leaving Imran Khan but uh, uh, other other the analysts say that these guys were never they, these guys joined Imran Khan because of the military establishment their real party workers are still with Imran Khan, but they're bearing a severe crackdown on them. Yeah, it's uh, inhuman activities and uh, torture is uh, right now being carried out on the Imran Khan's party members. As you've rightly mentioned, 7,000 people. I've got the list of each and every one out of them with me. I can share it later with your producer who have been picked up, abducted. There is no space left in the jails in Pakistan and the safe houses. Journalists are being abducted like Imran Riaz Khan. They've been abducted by ISI's internal wing and kept in the solitary confinement and they're not part of the system even now the people in Punjab the main 80% of Pakistan lives in Punjab they're realizing what's been going on for the last 70 years with people in Balochistan people in Khyber Pakhtunkhwa in the tribal areas people have been picked up made into missing persons their families they keep on searching for them but they're nowhere to be found in the system so this is what has been going on and now you know the, the it is happening with the mainstream Pakistanis so now they realize what happened in 1971 with the East Pakistanis. The history of Pakistan is being rewritten in this last 13 months. Let me tell you that. What do you expect to happen tomorrow, sir? Uh, Imran Khan has indicated he expects to be arrested. The last time they arrested him in a courtroom, uh, the judge declared that the arrest was illegal, although nobody paid any price for making an illegal arrest of their former prime minister. Do you expect that to happen again tomorrow? 
Yeah, I think uh, right now what uh, Imran Khan's uh, main party members, they've been abducted in thousands and thousands. So there will be a reaction. They will definitely test the resolve of the Pakistani people. If he gets away tomorrow, maybe later, they will definitely pick him up because the army chief is going to garrison to garrison. He's meeting officers and he's uh, shouting at the top of his voice using the complete force of his lungs. His His mouth is foaming once he's talking to the officers, army officers, and he's openly abusing uh, Imran Khan using gutter language. And uh, nobody else but Zalmay Khalil Zad has mentioned that. And I've, I can, I can, you know, confirm that that's what's been happening. And he's been abusing Imran Khan, and it's a personal match for him. And he just wants to go at Imran Khan under all circumstances. But his own army is not supporting him. And one of the general officers, while talking to me, uh, said that, "Listen, this guy. He was referring to the army chief." He said he's just a pile of shit. If he is not a general, we would not we would not have even saluted him. We would not have respected him. There's a personality. He, he's got he's got certain inferiority complexes. He was a ranker. He joined us uh, from uh, as a ranker. Then uh, he was not recommended by the inter-services selection board twice. Then he uh, used uh, uh, a backdoor to enter in the army from the officer training school, which has been disbanded so far. So people don't like him in the army, but still. He's going at Imran Khan because it's a matter of survival for them. They're scared of Imran Khan. So yeah, Imran Khan can be put into jail again, but Imran Khan is not willing to come out. Uh, my sources say that Imran Khan uh, has been offered the safe exit from Pakistan, but Imran Khan is not willing to take the safe exit. He said that I will stay here and I'll fight. And this is what he's doing right now. Well, uh, a personal match against Imran Khan, uh, the skipper, the captain, uh, has been uh, the downfall of many an opposition bowler and indeed batsman. Uh, Adil uh, Major, thank you very much indeed for joining us. I hope you'll stay in touch with the mother of all talk shows because I don't know how great a major you were, but you're a brilliant analyst and talker. Thank you, George. Thank you. Thank you so much. Uh, the G7 Samurai or Seven Dwarfs? A, Samurai, B, Dwarfs. I've no idea yet how many people have voted, how it's breaking, but my money is on the Dwarfs. Trevor is in Cambridge in England on Sudan that we covered uh, on Wednesday in the midweek moats. Go ahead, Trev. Hi, George. Thank you very much for taking my call again. It's a true honour and a privilege of mine. Thank you very much again for all the work you're doing to enlighten the people of the world as to what is going on. Now, um, I feel that I was slightly misrepresenting myself last time I phoned about Sudan because I didn't have time to come back on a very simplistic point of how the the West has um, sort of segregated Sudan into its three pieces now. Um, when I said before that the South was predominantly black, well, they, they were. The, 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 the SPLM, the Sudan's People's Liberation Movement slash Army, was uh, predominantly black African Christians who gained independence in sure, 2011. Sure. Yeah, so that's all I meant by that. And I'm thinking really from a simplistic point yeah. from the Americans and NATO and how they do. So now that the, the South has been uh, separated and given independence, or sort of earned independence, if you like. Which is where all the oil was, of course, Trev. Yeah. Oh, 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 absolutely. All the, all the oil, all, all the oil, a sea of oil was in South Sudan. That's how miraculously it became independent. 
it's just like um, our friend um, Gerald Salente says, if their export was broccoli, they would not be uh, touched by the West. <laughs> you, you, we understand that, don't exactly. we? So, exactly. But as we've got this, the South as a separate entity now, what we've got in the North is um, General de Gallo, uh, who's from the sort of the West of the region, the Darfur region of the North of Sudan, and General Burhan from the SAF, the Sudan Armed Forces, on the right, you know, on the on the uh, east side, if you like, from the affluent Khartoum area. So th- what you've got at the moment is a, although these two men, these two generals fought alongside each other in Yemen on behalf of the Saudis, i.e. NATO and the West, etc., they're now being uh, partitioned to se- further segregate Sudan into more manageable pieces for the West. This is the, the point I was really trying to make the last time I phoned. So it's oh, not you like made it, You did make it last time. Yeah, you did make it last time, and you've made it even better uh, this time, Trevor. Take a look at uh, uh, Ahmed Caballo's interview with me on Wednesday on this subject. We'll keep uh, a watching brief. Uh, Sudan's very important for me. Uh, have a long association with it at first traveled there in the 1970s and have kept a close eye on it ever since. It's a very, very important Arab and African country. Thanks, Trevor. Simon is a legend. He's in Florida and he's on the line. Uh, Well, Simon, you predicted uh, on Wednesday when we spoke uh, a lot of important developments. How have they gone so far? Well, Mr. Galloway, um, the turn of world history is not quite over yet. And indeed, the Chinese media, mm-hmm. whilst the main story of the C5 and the Xi'an Declaration was strictly embargoed, the thing that really caught my interest that hasn't been commented on in the rest of the Western media was all the Chinese magazines and newspapers saying that this Xi'an event was only the first act of the year, and there's a lot more to come. So that should certainly keep the Chinese aspects of your show very interesting. But if I may, I would like to draw the audience's attention to the official Ministry of Foreign Affairs Chinese government reaction to the allegations made against China in the G7 leaders' communique. And I'll just read the last two sentences alone. So the audience, should they wish, they can go to the Ministry of Foreign Affairs of China website and read the entire statement. This is, this is the kisser. This is the last two sentences. So quoting directly from the spokesman of the Ministry of Foreign Affairs of China, he said, Let me make it clear that gone are the days when a handful of Western countries can just willfully meddle in other countries' internal affairs and manipulate global affairs. We urge G7 members to catch up with the trend of the times. Focus on addressing the various issues they have at home. Stop ganging up to form exclusive blocks. Stop containing and bludgeoning other countries. Stop creating and stoking block confrontation and get back to the right path of dialogue and cooperation. 
very powerful words and very well uh, delivered uh, by you, uh, Simon. Uh, there must come a point at which uh, China loses patience with all these browbeaters, especially when they are little twerps like Rishi Sunak, uh, as I said at the beginning, roaring like a mouse, uh, the allegation that China is our biggest security threat. Just imagine, how are you supposed to sit down and do business with someone who's just described you as a security threat to them? Well, we've got that axiom from history, never interrupt your enemy when they're making a mistake. And I think the Chinese are trying to solidify their gains before they make any contrary reactions to what are clearly serious foreign policy errors on the part of the British and American government, if not others. I have always, Simon, I have always regarded uh, the G7 a, a bit askance, even in their great days, in their pomp. Uh, there was something comic opera about Italy being in the G7, about Canada being in the G7, but now they look like a feeble collection of moral and political dwarves deeply unpopular in their own country, not waving but drowning. Is that how it looked to you? Well, we have to remember how they even came about. Originally, it was the G6 and the G7 and the G8 and back to the G7, but they were founded as a response to the oil crisis in 1973. They started in 1975, and they were specifically the anti-OPEC group. And I think with, with the consolidation and the apparent harmony, with a couple of exceptions now in the Arab League, that, that kind of confrontation may well reappear its head. And people should possibly pay some attention, if they have time, to what occurred in Tatarstan with the 14th Russian Islamic World Conference held in the city of Kazan. It was very interesting to see that there were 7,000 representatives of 85 countries, including every single member nation of the Organization of Islamic Countries. So it looks like the West is yeah, really for me, uh, I don't know your, uh, I don't know how good your Bolshevik history is, Simon, but it recalled for me uh, the great Congress of the Peoples of the East in Baku uh, in, I think, 1919, maybe 1920, uh, the one where John Reed, the American journalist who wrote 10 Days That Shook the World, caught typhus and later died. Uh, that uh, Congress of the Peoples of the East was described magically by John Reed in 10 days that shook the world as uh, having drawn people, uh, most exotic, many unknown relatively at that time, from all parts of the East. This conference in Kazan, because of course I'm deeply interested in the Islamic world, was something magical. Kazan is a magical place in any case. But the level of representation at this Congress in Kazan showed that Russia is a major player amongst the 2.4, 2.5 
billion Muslims in the world, no? I would definitely agree. It's important to remember that there are a large number of Muslims within the Russian Federation, and the president right. of Tatarstan gave an extremely powerful speech that was the most beautiful riposte to President Zelensky, because when Zelensky went to Jeddah in Saudi Arabia for the Arab League conference, he appealed to the Arabs on the basis that he would free and protect the Crimean Tartars, whilst at the same time, his head of intelligence has indicated recently that they will purge violently three million people from Crimea who have indicated yeah, loyalty he, to Russia. Yeah, yeah he promised genocide uh, to those who had, uh, by their votes in the referendum, pledged themselves to Russia. So I think that when you had the president of Tartarstan speaking in a pro-Russian manner, it really undermined Mr. Zelensky's claim to be the protector of the Tartars. Mm -hmm. Well, I'll tell you what, Simon, read 10 Days That Shook the World and then watch Warren Beatty's epic Reds. You can thank me later. Thanks very much for that call. You are listening to the Mother of All Talk Shows podcast with George Galloway. Let's go straight to Moscow, where the one and only Donald Corter awaits. Donald, welcome back to the Mother of All Talk Shows. I've just been looking at some very impressive pictures of you at the International Film Festival, where you are sitting with some very impressive people. Tell us first uh, about that film festival and how your own film is doing well thanks again for the uh invitation as always george it's a pleasure to be on your show i love it um and in terms of the film festival this film festival that i was at it was in in tula actually a major russian city that's south of moscow and it's a one of basically one of the uh biggest war film festivals in russia it's sponsored by uh, all pretty much all the state media channels uh russia today uh, per, the first channel uh, Russia 24. It's also uh, sponsored by the Russian uh, Presidential um, Fund for Cultural Initiatives. So it's a big, high-profile thing. And I was actually really honored to uh, have my uh, documentary film that I directed with George, with Jeff Monson uh, called Eight Years Before about the Donbass conflict to uh, be in this um, film festival to compete for an award with which it actually did. This is the uh, I was able to get the Chris the Crystal Award at this uh, film festival Wonderful. for a great Dunbar's documentary, and um, yeah, and and at the actual screening, uh, what I wanted to uh, really mention on your show was just how many young people were actually there. The uh, room for the screening of our documentary was filled with Russian young people, and I was really happy to see this because the point of this documentary film was not only to bring the truth of what happened in Donbass eight years before the military operation began uh, to show that to people in the West, but to show it to anyone who might not have an idea. And a lot of these Russian uh, youths right now are looking for uh, answers when it comes to the conflict going on there. Is the film still on YouTube, Donald? Can people still yeah. see it? 
Yeah, you could still see it. My YouTube it's, channel, for some reason, has not been blocked, the Revolution Report. It's called Eight Years Before. Uh, I, there's an abridged version and a full version. I highly suggest people watch the full version because there's some uh, really cool interviews, really heart, heart-wrenching interviews, I have to say, that Jeff and I actually filmed when we were in the Lugansk People's Republic and the Donetsk People's Republic with civilians who suffered at the hands of the Ukrainian military, at the hands of Ukrainian neo-Nazis, and they tell their stories, essentially. This this is a narrative formed through the uh, voices of people who actually live in Donbass and suffered throughout those eight years before the military operation began. The unkindest cut of all for these people is the uh, um, post last year, uh, the denial uh, of the uh, Calvary that they uh, were forced to endure for those eight years, even amongst circles, and media circles in particular, that had relatively comprehensively reported on the suffering of the people in the Donbass before the start of the military operation. The level of cynicism involved is quite extraordinary. Um, television and newspapers that wrote about the Nazis, the Azov battalion, the right sector, the, the shelling and indiscriminate murder uh, of Ukrainian citizens in the east of the country for eight long years, that was all suddenly wiped and dispatched to the memory hole. That's why your film is so very important. Well, yeah, I, I appreciate it. I mean, originally, it uh, th this film was supposed to, it was filmed in 2021. This film was actually supposed to bring international attention back to the Donbass conflict that had left, um, the, you know, uh, most of the mainstream media. Like you said, there were some media outlets uh, reporting on it in the West about Ukraine's neo-Nazi problem. You can even find uh, an article on the internet by the Atlantic Council saying that uh, Ukraine has a neo-Nazi problem and that, no, this is not a Russia Today article. Like you said, this was all actually documented in uh, the Western media, and we wanted to bring more attention to that. And it's just after the military operation began that we decided to change the purpose of this film uh, to be uh, basically a vehicle of information to show people in the West why Russia launched the military operation in the first place. Because like you said, the narrative changes, all of a sudden the political uh, goals change, all of a sudden Western foreign policy changes, all of a sudden Russia is uh, the big the big bad enemy more than it was before, and now Ukraine doesn't have a neo-Nazi problem, now they're calling Putin Hitler, as, as ridiculous as that is, saying that Russia resembles the Third Reich. I myself am a communist, I would not live in a country that resembles the Third Reich if that were the case. Talking of changes, uh, how, how do you account for the fact that in March, which is not that long ago, let's face it, uh, Bakhmut, Artemovsk, uh, was of such strategic value that Zelensky was demanding, begging, cajoling uh, for a major resupply of ever more powerful weaponry in order to defend it because he said uh, that if it falls it will change the course of the whole war. Now that it's fallen we have the same media that reported him and his demands 
telling us that the fall of uh, Bakhmut is of no importance and they, they can't even understand what all the fuss is about. Well, of course, they're just trying to, uh, you know, play everything down when they've taken a catastrophic loss that they didn't expect they were going to do. I mean, uh, now, obviously, Zelensky's narrative here is that even though Bakhmut was lost, it was somehow a victory because Russian troops lost uh, significant amounts of, uh, I mean, they took heavy casualties, even though none of, no evidence has been put forward to suggest really actually how many uh, casualties the Russian military and the Wagner private military company uh, sustained. And also no information has been put forward as to how many Ukrainians and essentially NATO mercenaries have died there as well. Of course, we know it's it's been a bloodbath, but the reason it's been a bloodbath is because both sides have long understood that Bakhmut or Artyomovsk is a very strategic city. And now uh, with with it, um, you know, in Russian hands, we may see a sort of turning point in the entire military operation to begin with, where uh, Ukraine is is really going to be on the back foot more than it was before. And another indication of why Bakhmut is is of course of strategic importance is that the Ukrainian military, even though they've been pushed out of the city, are trying very hard to flank to outflank Russian forces that are currently controlling. That city, they're still trying to, uh, you know, get a hold on it as much as possible. And then also, we've got Zelensky accusing Russia in in, in Hiroshima at the G7 summit, accusing Russia of being responsible for all the destruction that took place in uh, Bakhmut, saying that uh, you know, basically likening it to the kind of nuclear destruction that happened in Hiroshima that the United States committed back in 1945. But obviously, it takes two to tango, and the, the in, you know, unfortunately, the, it is a, a terrible thing, war, and the fact that Artyomovsk has been destroyed. But you know, it is the Ukrainian government that started this conflict in the first place. Um, what do the uh, Russian public you're out and about all the time? Uh, has this changed? Do you think the uh, point of view of the Russian public? Do they? They sense that the tide has turned, that the war uh, will be uh, finally won, that it then will be over, that a conclusion can be reached, uh, or are they dug in for the for the long haul? Well, I think everyone is uh, is prepared to be dug in for the long haul, but the news of uh, Bakhmut coming under the liberation of Russian troops, I mean, is of course good news for. Uh, people here. It's it's good to hear uh, specifically that news right now because it's been in the media for a long time as a strategic point like we were just talking about. It's been fought over very intensely for a very long time. And of course, you know, uh, in, in the mainstream media all over, there have uh, the, the more recent uh, significant changes along the front line have admittedly been kind of negative, right? We had the Ukrainian counteroffensive that, uh, you know, took uh, significant chunks of uh, the Kharkov region back, as well as the uh, capital of Kherson. When, you know, news like this happens, it's uh, disheartening for a lot of people. But we're seeing here a very significant victory that is obviously uh, raising the morale of people here, even though it never went very low, to be honest. We've been seeing these studies of uh, Russian support uh, for the military operation and the Putin administration throughout uh, you know, the last year. And 
it stayed very high. I mean, the lowest I've seen it go is about 66% of the population, which is more than most Western leaders can say, that's for sure. Well, the G7 uh, has just uh, assembled in Hiroshima, as we've been talking about, and not a single one of those leaders has the support of the majority of their people. As right. that well-known Bolshevik organ, the New York Times, pointed out, it is a club of unloved leaders. Uh, mm. So uh, even at its lowest point, and its highest point was well over 80%, the support of the Russian people for the war was uh, overwhelming and, and uh, strong. I'm just wondering, I've asked you this before, uh, do you encounter any unpleasantness at all uh, on the streets of Russia as an American? Because you surely would encounter some unpleasantness from some people in America uh, if you were a Russian broadcaster and a filmmaker. How are the people reacting to you, dealing with you on a day-to-day -day basis? People have re been reacting to me in the most positive way you can imagine. I mean, uh, think about this. I, I went to a Russian war film festival filled with, you know, people who are very in support of the military operation. A lot of them have ties to the Russian military. That's why they go there in the first place, which obviously has long had a sort of generally, um, you know, anti-United States government culture attached to it. But, you know, the, the, they don't. They don't ethnically hate Americans. I actually, uh, pe people there actually loved that there was an American actually coming over to Donbass, like sp spending the time and effort to go there and show people in the West the truth uh, through a documentary film. That's why they gave me an award in the first place, because they they saw that uh, I was doing something that most Westerners would not have dared to do, uh, to actually go film a documentary uh, in the actual war zone where, uh, you know, thing, things were quite dangerous at that time. And it just goes to show the Russian people don't see this as a conflict between Russians and Ukrainians or Russians and Americans. They're not like, oh, we hate Americans, we hate Ukrainians. Although I, I have to say, I've noticed that sentiment in the West about Russians, where they're trying to basically erase everything Russian as, a, as something unpatriotic. But we got to remember the Russians and the Ukrainians were brotherly peoples, and they still are, actually. I mean, in the Soviet Union, they were two republics of the same uh, multinational country, and Russians still look at Ukrainians as their brothers. But there are, of course, neo-Nazi Ukrainians or nationalist Ukrainians, pro-Western Ukrainians, and there are Ukrainians that remember the sort of fraternal bond of the Russian-Ukrainian people uh, that they shared throughout decades of the existence of the Soviet Union in their struggle against imperialism, against Western imperialism. So there are also plenty of Ukrainians who support Russia as well. That's something that is almost never uh, covered in the Western media, like, for example, the coverage of uh, Ukrainian refugees. They're kind of being used as a sort of propaganda tool for uh, Western media trying to make Russia look out, look to be uh, the bad guy in this situation. But what they don't really show is that many of these Ukrainian refugees, they're not actually fleeing destruction caused by the Russian military or the war or anything. Many of them are fleeing, uh, you know, uh, mandatory conscription because 
People are in, in the in Ukraine. People are going around to people's doors and knocking on knocking on people's doors, saying, "All right, you're going to come come to the military and fight Russia." And a lot of people are just not ready to do that, either for political reasons or because they just want to be left alone throughout all this. Donald Coulter, good luck uh, with the film. Congratulations on your award. The film is eight years before, and you should definitely catch up with it on YouTube. Thanks for joining us, Donald, as always. Uh, now, the G7 Samurai, or Seven Dwarves, 15.293 thousand people have voted, and it is overwhelming that the G7 Grumpy, dopey, sneezy, and all the rest are definitely under the leadership of Snow White, Joe Biden, the Seven Dwarves. Jason is in Germany on the line. Let's hear from him. Jason, welcome to the show. Hi. Hi. Well, greetings from Germany. So today... Thank you. I'm in Germany about... too. Yes, that's why I said greetings from Germany to Germany. <laughs> Thank you. I'm in the Frankfurt area, and you're in the Berlin area. Uh, I think I remember you saying. Yeah, yeah. Deep um, underground. <laughs> I want to talk about uh, RT Russia today being geo-blocked in the EU. I'm not sure if your other viewers know yeah. about that. We cannot let this topic die. There has to be uh, a way that this is a, a, like a thousand slaps in the face for freedom of the press. And there has to be legal channels or something that we can do to, to not let them get away with this. Because if they can block RT, they can block anybody. And we cannot let them get away with it. Uh, quite so. Uh, it's like that uh, famous uh, American uh, military officer in the Vietnam War who said, we are destroying this village in order to save it. Uh, they are shredding uh, our freedoms, our ability to speak freely, to watch what we like and uh, discard or embrace any point of view that we like. We are shredding all these things ostensibly in the name of freedom, of freedom of speech, of European values, whatever they are. Uh, many people in Africa have a point of view about European values. Many in Asia many in the former colonies of the European powers. Many people have seen the documentaries on the First World War, the Second World War, and wonder what all this European values baloney is all about. But even if you accept that there is such a thing as good European values, then shredding them in the defense of European values is a contradiction in terms, it's an oxymoron uttered and practiced by morons. Thanks, Jason. In Germany, don't forget to watch on Catch Up, Motz of Deutsch, uh, which uh, aired earlier this evening. Uh, Heath is in Florida. Let's hear from him. Go ahead, Heath. Hello, George. Thank you for taking my call. So, um... Okay. About 20 years ago, a friend of mine and I, we were talking about the future rise of China, and he said something that was very prescient. He said that the Chinese will never confront American power. They will slowly unwind it. And that's always stayed with me uh, since he said that. And so with what's mm. been going on in Ukraine and Russia, I've lived in America 20 years. So um, when 
you know, when Putin in 2007 and then 2008, when we tried to bring Georgia the same sort of playbook into NATO, and he utterly decimated the Georgian army and broke up and, um, and balkanized the country so that they couldn't join, I, I just thought that there's going to come a day when they're going to have to confront American power. And so watching what's happened in Ukraine since the Maidan since 2014, I just get the feeling that since Russia began its military operation is that the the actions that Russia have taken, they don't, they just, they just don't feel reactionary, because every move that the West has made has been countered very quickly, from from circumventing uh, uh, sanctions, uh, bringing other, uh, you know, bringing other uh, countries in, in, into the fold, and and not using an overwhelming military response straight away and straight out the gate. Because what's happened since this time last year is I I don't know what you think about this, but I can just feel the, the I can just feel the power of the West waning incrementally, and it's almost like we're in some kind mm. of kessel, and we're slowly being bled and squeezed dry. And so what's happening is that they knew that this time was going to come, and through regional relationships with BRICS and China and everyone else, they've actually decided the moment that they're going to shift the power from the West to the East, and they are doing it incrementally, starting slowly, and then it's going to be quickly. I just wanted to know what you thought about that. Well, my first thought is how lucky the state of Florida is to have uh, both you and Simon as uh, Englishmen abroad uh, in their state. Uh, if, uh, if you have any influence on the state of Florida, uh, both of you, uh, I can only think that is uh, a very considerable advantage. Uh, the description that you give is the one that I perhaps less eloquently than you, have been trying throughout this show to make. It's dwar dwarves, I chose the word dwarves, not just because there are seven of them in the G7, but because actually they are moral and political, and in many cases, uh, physical dwarves. They are, they are shrunken, and our political class is entirely emaciated, bloodless, short, and almost bereft of political support from their own people. Isn't that a remarkable thing? Isn't it remarkable that Canada is led by one of the most hated men that has ever been in politics in Canada? Isn't it remarkable that a man like Joe Biden is in charge of the great uh, United States of America, that uh, Maloney, that Macron, that Rishi Sunak are, are in charge of once significant European countries, once empires in their own right. In other words, I don't want to get, you know, uh, too supernatural or metaphysical about it, but it's almost as if the Almighty was signaling uh, the transfer of power in the world from the West to the East through the medium of uh, these dwarfish thieves about whom the robes of power uh, hang so loose. Thank you, Heath, in Florida. Uh, Colm is on the line in Dublin. Let's hear from him. Colm, welcome. Uh, how are you, George? Great to speak to you. Uh, thanks for taking me, Carl. Thank you. Um, I'm not going to hold bro. you up too long. I didn't catch a lot of the show. I only actually heard the bit 
you were talking about, uh, and I know you know her, this history, about, um, you know, the Fianna Fáil, Fianna Gael, and uh, the whole Sinn Féin thing, and Mary Lou MacDonald. And as you know, um, I mean, people think that, you know, if, you know, Sinn Féin are the new party, they're going to do this and do that. I'm a former Republican, an ex-prisoner, and I'm disgusted with the likes of Mary Lou and, uh, you know, this government that we have in power. They've got an open-door policy, as you know. They don't care. They're letting everybody in. You know, it was no Brits at first, you know, and now all of a sudden, you know, the certain guys went out to the airport videoing and they're saying, where are you from? And there's Indian men saying they're from Ukraine, you know. Even if it's a Ukrainian man coming in, he should be over there fighting, fighting for his country and... You know, that's the way it should be. But there's something obviously going on. And our government, especially Mary Lou and that, you know, they didn't care about Donbass and what happened over the eight years. You know, they just, people call them separatists. Nobody knows what went on. They just think that Putin went in and, you know, took over Ukraine. And the people of Ireland, they're not stupid. But RTE, BBC have manipulated the people in this country. And... The likes of YouTube, who I'm banned off, uh, just for putting up certain videos. It, you know, it goes back to even when Jerry Adams couldn't speak. You remember them days. Your younger audience wouldn't. They, they, it, it, we're going back. We're going back to the same sort of routine, George. And you know, it's only going to get worse. It is. And for people in yeah. Ireland that are listening, well, uh, uh, I hope thanks, they understand. Uh, Com. Uh, these are important points that you raise, and I'm cutting you short only because of the hour. I've only got uh, 10 minutes left in the show. We don't have time to do them justice. But it is fair to point out that Mary Lou MacDonald is not in the government uh, of Ireland. Having said which, if she was in the government of Ireland, uh, the, the Russian ambassador would have been ordered out of the country, the only European country in which that would have happened would be the only neutral country in Ireland, the only country which in its constitution is committed to neutrality. This was a major mistake uh, by Sinn Féin, in my view. But to be fair, uh, we should say she is not uh, in the government. The issue of uh, unrestricted mass immigration into Ireland is a very vexed one, and I can understand and feel your Anxiety about it in Britain, which is a very much bigger country, very much bigger economy, very much bigger territory. It is a major issue, unaddressed by the mainstream political parties. So I sense that in Ireland, it is indeed a very big issue indeed. But we'll return to it at calm another time. Paul Cormacan on Patreon. Paul, thank you for your support. I don't know which one of the seven dwarfs Joe Biden is. Sleepy is the obvious one, but Dopey is an apt choice too. And Graham Briggs-White, who is a legend in uh, my Patreon, says this G7 is just a corporate Western stupidity. And they're now trying to recruit other countries to try and keep up with the BRICS. Good luck with that. Did you hear Zelensky's speech in Saudi Arabia too? Hypocrisy, indeed. And it went down in the Arab world like a lead balloon, as did his attire. Uh, James Halpin says, 
more like Johnny English and company. I like that. And Hill says, not too keen on the analogy, just murderous bastards in truth. And Hermias A. Abedi says, no more, new world order. And Andy says, cheers for reading out my Mother's Day greeting last Sunday. My mother-in-law and all the entire family were absolutely gobsmacked from rural Uganda to thriving Chinese metropolis. The global appeal of moats gets stronger and stronger. Cheers to you, Andy, and to your lovely family in rural Uganda. Paul MacDonald says, watching Prime Minister Trudeau's performance at this meeting is excruciating. The smug and disingenuous grin makes my blood boil, you and me both. Did you see his power stance standing next to the Prime Minister? <laughs> Maybe the most ridiculous picture I've ever seen. Uh, another new Moats legend, Heidi Turi, signed up 15 minutes ago. Thank you, Heidi. God bless you. And Nasri Akil, very, very good supporter of ours, says, God bless you, Gigi. It's a privilege for me to back your incredible platform and brutal battle against the mainstream media. Nasri, thank you. And all of you who support me on Patreon through thick and thin when I've really needed it. I appreciate it. The legend, Norma in Bristol, will have to be our last call of this evening. Go ahead, Norma. Hello, George. Um, it's only a quick one, as usual. I was listening hmm. to LBC Radio this morning, and Andrew Castle... That's the local, you know uh, local London radio station, yeah? Yeah, Just no, for it's the not international really. audience. Yeah, it gets a big audience. He was a tennis player, a professional... Hmm. But his show this morning made me so cross. He, um, he's an avid supporter of everything Ukraine and G7 in Hiroshima. And there was a really intelligent caller who was trying to put a different view across. And he just got completely cross and cut him off. Now, my point is, how can we ever criticise what's going on? There's really, we haven't got free speech. We haven't got an outlet. And he was so rude. He's supposed to be in, you know, he's in a bad person sometimes. But my God, he was awful this morning. I just wanted to say that. And I well, did want uh, to say I think, uh, yeah, go on, go on, go on. Well, no, it's only to advertise the fact that on ITV One tonight, there's the um, fight to free Julian Assange, and it's at twenty twenty, and I thought. Maybe there's a few people saying, ask if you can actually say, watch it, because it's going to be extremely good. That was the other thing. So, sorry, it was too... Well, I was actually going to mention that, so let me respond to that point first. Uh, ITV, uh, full marks to them, are showing the film Ithaca, which is the story of Julian Assange's persecution and attempted crucifixion. Uh, from through the eyes of his uh, family. Uh, I haven't seen it myself, but I'm told it is a brilliant film, and it's brilliant that it's on ITV, which at least retains a significant audience uh, on a Sunday evening late. So I think it's on at uh, 10.20. I may be wrong. Check the schedules and make sure, if you can, that you can watch that. On your first point, Norma, 
this is not waving but drowning that I keep uh, referring to. They wouldn't be doing that if they were confident in their argument, in their case. In truth, it's the opposite. They are so unconfident, so desperate, that they will close down any television station, try to close down any Twitter account or Facebook account or YouTube account. They will try and stifle, strangle, silence any alternative point of view precisely because they fear that their grip on the narrative has begun rapidly to disappear. Uh, Barack Obama was asked this week what kept him awake at night. And this is what he said. I am kept awake at night by my growing sense that we are losing control over the prevailing narrative. Well, he's a clever man, Barack Obama, if uh, deeply disillusioning, dishonest and disappointing one. He is correct. The truth is, the proponents of war, the G7, of NATO, of weapons and destruction, of keeping this war in Ukraine going for as long as possible, are so rapidly and comprehensively losing the argument that the only answer they have left is to cut people off, as to not allow them onto the air in the first place, to ban them from the airwaves in the first place. Given I'm quite a prominent individual in Britain with a strong point of view, a person who 20 years ago was on the television, ITV and BBC practically every day in the run-up to the Iraq war, you'd think that I might occasionally be invited to opine on this war in Ukraine. But you know Norma and the rest of the audience can guess that I have not been invited once. And I will never be invited once. Because they cannot risk me on the airwaves, live, exposing their lies, tearing to pieces uh, the tapestry of falsehoods that they have sewn together over this last 15 months, over these last eight years, over these last decades. They simply can't afford to take the risk. Just like the U.S. Senate quickly regretted giving me the opportunity to address them, so the mainstream uh, media channels will never make that mistake again. But the good news is you can find me here every Sunday and every Wednesday evening. I'll be back on Wednesday for the midweek mother of all talk shows at the slightly later hour of 9pm UK time. I've no idea which country I'll be broadcasting from it won't be 9 o'clock for me, but it will be 9 o'clock London time for you. So join me and bring another viewer with you. Please do. Don't forget that Moats of Deutsch will be back next Sunday at 5 p.m. Berlin time, Central European time. 
as will I, at 7pm UK time. It's been marvellous. Thanks for tuning in. <laughs>